Welcome to the Telling of Story podcast. I'm your host, Storyteller Jules, and along with my guests, it's my endeavour to explore the art and science of storytelling to attract, engage, and retain a business audience, and to unpack why it works for some and not for the many that try. This week, I have the pleasure of sitting down and chatting with founder and principal of Meld Studios, Steve Beatty. Listen in as Steve talks about the part of the proposal they're likely to remember when you're presenting one forward. And we tend to remember that story about that person far more strongly and they resonate far more strongly with people than a requirements document ever could. Welcome to the Telling of Story podcast. I'm your host, Storyteller Jules, and I've been looking forward to this interview with Steve Beatty. Since 2009, Steve has been the co-founder and director at Meld Studios, as well as the co-founder and conference director at UX Australia. He's also the founder of UX Book Club, both globally and the Sydney chapter. Steve has presented at many conferences and events globally and locally, including being the keynote speaker Midwest UX 2016, in Interaction South America 2017, as well as speaking in many cities around the world, including uh, Istanbul, Amsterdam, Helsinki, San Francisco, just to name a few. Steve is a good design ambassador. He's also an awards judge, a member of the Australian Democrats, and importantly, a father of four and husband. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Steve, the term UX came up quite a lot in your bio. For those who may not be aware, what is UX and can you define that for us? So um, UX stands for user experience. It's a way to describe the the, the act of designing for um, digital systems primarily, but uh, not only, in a way that takes into account how people feel about things rather than just taking a functional view of what they're doing and how they're doing it. So um, historically, user experience was a reaction to a very functional view of software development, which had been translated into the web in the late 90s and early 2000s um, and and didn't really have a lot of soul to it. Um, That quite functional view is you know, I, you, you still see it today. You still see it in the way that uh, a lot of software um, is designed and, and developed. But what we were finding in those early days was that there was a way of designing those things that took into account how people were thinking, how they were feeling, um, and using that as the focal point for the design exercise, we were able to come up with websites software applications that people were more likely to use and more likely to use more. Um, So the utilization of these things was higher. People's satisfaction with them was higher. Um, And from that, an an industry was born. Almost by definition, good good UX designs means that you're taking people on a a bit of a journey um, from, from what is and what can be. And I can only imagine that storytelling plays a part in that. Uh, how big a part does storytelling play, if at all, in, in what you do? So one, of the, one of the best books, um, to one of those foundational books on, on user experience, which was actually uh, written by a guy by the name of John Colco. He's um, still practising uh, in Austin, Texas, and he wrote a book called Thoughts on Interaction Design. If I, if I had to pick a date, because I, I don't remember exactly, it was probably written around 2007, 2008. Um, and the reason I mention it is that in the introduction to the book, John talks about interaction design, which is you know sort of a, a, a foundational part of good user experience. But John, John talks about this idea of um, interaction design as the design of a dialogue between the user and your service or your product. Um, And it's a really interesting way to think about what it is that you're doing. There's this sort of back and forth um, between you 
uh, your service and the, and the user. And if you take that one step further and think about it, not just in terms of the dialogue, but in terms of a narrative, um, then you start to see the importance of well, what is the story that's being told through those interactions? What is the, um, the story of the benefit that's being uh, delivered to the customer, to the user through what you're doing? Um, and it becomes quite a foundational way of thinking about what we're doing, why we're doing it, why somebody should be using your product, like those sort of core value proposition things that are so important to marketing start to come through um, and can be provided that overarching context if we start thinking about that narrative of how somebody is interacting over time with the thing that we've designed. So within that process, talk to me about what the, the thought process that you take people through of when they're looking at the user experience of the, of the customer and how they're about to interact or engage in, in that. What's the process that you take them through to get them to really think about that evolution of the way it's being used and the intent of the use of it and the outcomes of the use of it? Break that down a little for me. There are, there are a couple of tools that we use or a couple of devices that we use in our design work a lot. So at Melt Studios, we do a lot of work um, that can be cat categorized as service design more so than user experience design, but that customer experience or that user experience carries through as quite an important part of what we're doing. In those service design projects, which is this sort of end-to-end -end design of what you're delivering and how you're delivering it, uh, over time. One of the tools that we use quite a lot is a, is a journey, um, like a customer journey or a customer journey map. Um, and in that you have this sort of series of key interactions that are taking place over time um, from the early sort of uh, parts in the sales cycle when a customer or a person discovers and researches and understands your service or your product and the benefit that it uh, delivers, where they compare that to their own needs um, and they make sort of value judgments around price, convenience, how easy it's going to be to use your service, all the way through to signing up, onboarding, ongoing use, ultimately the offboarding process when they're no longer a customer and they've gotten what they need from you. But you create these narratives around these sort of key moments are almost like a storyboard. And in a lot of cases, you can actually tell the story of somebody's journey with your product quite literally through a storyboard that wouldn't look out of place in a, um, you know, a, a movie um, setting or in a, a cartoon type setting, a comic strip type uh, setting, where you've got these sort of key scenes that tell you what's happening, that um, make it clear to the reader um, what it is you're delivering, how it is you're delivering it, why it's critical in that moment. And that um, visual narrative in a lot of cases is the thing that helps people get on board with a concept. It helps them understand what is it that we're trying to achieve with this thing. It helps um, software developers, hardware vendors, you know, those sort of technological uh, people who are going to deliver on something, understand the intent behind a lot of what's going on. So rather than being reliant on these sort of technical requirements, um, business requirements is the thing that drives the design and development of, of a system. You can actually take it from the point of view of here's the difference we're trying to make to somebody's life. Here's the, um, the experience we want them to have when they're going through this process, when they're using our service, when they're visiting our centre. Um, we want them to be able to do these things and we want them to be able to feel in these kind of ways. And storytelling is a great way to get that across. Um, as humans, not only do we engage with stories really, really well, but we also remember them a lot better as well. Um, and we tend to remember that story about that person far more strongly and they resonate far more strongly with people than a requirements document ever could. So I've been online for a very long time and have read um, and, you know, and seen many, many 
good and bad, you know, websites, good and bad software. And part, and one of the things that I sort of note, I guess, is the quality of the information or the type of information that's delivered at a point in time. And a lot of poor systems, if you like, try and over-deliver on information. You know, there's too much information at mostly inappropriate times. And what that tends to do is sort of cloud my understanding, cloud my, you know, feeling about what I'm, what, why I'm there and what I'm trying to achieve. Uh, conversely, a good website or a good system will, will deliver the right information at the right time. How important is that when you're doing UX design to deliver information and those stories behind that information at the right time in context to where I'm at rather than, you know, where you want me to be, I guess, if that makes sense. What's going on there is something really important. So those poor sites, the ones where you've had a confusing experience or information overload or um, the, the, the quantity of information feels overwhelming, is that they haven't provided any sense of a contextual filter for you. They haven't provided you with a sense of information priority for you. And they haven't structured the information in a way that presents any kind of hierarchy for you. So you're missing a lot of the framework, the sort of scaffolding that you as a customer or you as a user might need to make rapid sense of the information that's being presented to you in that moment. And that's usually a sign that the, the designers and the content designers don't know because they haven't asked, they haven't gone and spoken to the people who are likely to use their software and use their systems. Um, they haven't taken the opportunity to understand what it is that those people need. So in specific moments, they present everything that you might possibly need rather than the thing that's most likely to be needed. They don't present you with the next bit that you're likely to need based on where you are right now. And so you get presented with this sort of overwhelming um, barrage of information. When people do things really well, and, um, and they, they do that design part really well, what they'll go and do is uh, research with people. And by that, I'm, I simply mean in a lot of cases, they'll go and talk to the sort of people who will use the thing that they're designing. Um, and I'm being vague there because it, it works with any number of, of things from train stations through to mobile apps. But by talking to that person uh, and talking to a range of people who are going to be using the thing that you're designing, you get into a position where you can say, okay, I feel reasonably confident that I know what are the most likely things to be going through that person's mind in this moment? What are the key questions that they might be asking? Because I've got that sense of a dialogue going on. What are the key questions that they might be asking? And therefore, I can prioritize the most likely answers that they're going to need. Um, and I can subsequently lay out logical next steps for them as well, based on my understanding of that type of person in this moment, what their overarching activity looks like, what the steps involved in that, like in completing that activity might be, and I can lay out a path for them. So you, you've both got a sense in the moment, I understand what that dialogue needs to look like and what that the highest priority content needs to be. And I've got a sense of, well, what is the overarching journey and where are, where are we on it? So instead of designing these con contextless moments, I am designing this sort of narrative flow and I am designing a, um, a flow with intent. And how difficult is that to achieve when we're talking about potentially tens of thousands of, of people? You know, you're trying to do it at scale that might be coming through the process. Is it, you know, you talk about, you know, talking with people and getting their understanding and understanding what that journey is and then determining which are the most likely priorities and context in each of those stages. How difficult is that when there's tens of thousands of people and they might all be slightly different? 
It's really not. Um, what we find uh, typically is that the numbers of people that you need to speak to um, are relatively low. And to give a, an example, what we're, what we're trying to do with that research is find the big things. We're trying to identify what the main issues are. We're not trying to conduct a comprehensive audit of all of the things that might be going on. We're looking to elevate the top one, two, three things only. And so because they're the most common things that we expect to arise, I don't need to go and talk to that many people before those things start to surface. By their nature, those main concerns, those common concerns will be common. And so once I talk to six, eight, 10, 12 people, I will find that I'm getting pretty good coverage around what those major issues are. Depending on the, like the differences in the audiences that I might be designing for, I might actually uh, segment that and talk to six or eight from each of the different types of people because I expect their behaviours to be distinctive and therefore their needs to be distinctive as they navigate through the site. But designing for millions of people doesn't mean interviewing and researching with millions of people. It still comes down to good research with dozens of people only. And that's quite a manageable exercise. When you think about the sort of infrastructure and the sorts of systems that we're talking about, um, you know, the, the main website that you use to engage with the tax office, for example, or the MyGov website, for example, you know, these sort of big government systems, um, you, you could still produce very good systems and very well-designed and well-targeted systems speaking with dozens, perhaps hundreds of people and subsequently going out and, and delivering well a digital service to millions of Australians. I just want to change tack for a little bit. You've spoken at many events globally and locally. Did you purposefully set out to become a keynote speaker or speak to these events? And Are you a natural storyteller or is it something you've had to work on? over the years? I'll, I'll take that in, in parts. So um, I have been very fortunate over the last 12 or 15 years in particular to initially um, be able to write for a variety of different publications. Um, I, I had picked up um, writing in design magazines in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, doing uh, software reviews and sort of industry surveys for the graphic design industry, um, writing about new releases of Photoshop or um, Quark Express or Freehand when those things were, um, you know, when desktop publishing tools were uh, dominant in the design industry. I carried that across to writing for things like business and technology uh, UX Matters, uh, Johnny Holland magazine, um, and those got me invitations to speak at conferences. Over time, those invitations uh, gained prominence. So instead of giving a 20-minute talk or a 45-minute talk at a conference, I was asked to come and give the uh, you know, closing keynote. Um, and that's, it's an enormous privilege to be asked to come and do that kind of thing. Um, as a conference organiser myself, I know the amount of faith you put in a keynote speaker, um, whether it's to open a conference, open the day's proceedings, close the day's proceedings, or wrap up the entire event. There's a lot riding on the ability of that person to actually articulate well a collection of thoughts that will resonate with an audience and in a way that will resonate in an audience rather than alienate them. The last thing you want as, as a conference organiser is to have your closing keynote, the one that you want to sort of wrap up the, uh, the conference themes, tie it up in a nice package, deliver it to the audience and send them off, you know, with this sort of coherent collection of thoughts and 
inspired and energized and instead they alienate the audience and i have had that um once or twice it's a it, it's a privilege so i i've i i haven't sought it i haven't sort of gone out and said i'd like to be a keynote speaker and approach different conferences i've just been fortunate over the years that a number of conferences have actually reached out to me and said look we'd like you to take on this role are you are you up for it in terms of am I a natural storyteller or have I had to work for it? I, um, I don't know, to be honest. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not short of words, but whether or not I'm, I'm actually a, a good storyteller or not, I'm going to leave to you and, and to others, I think. I, I don't think I'm a confusing individual, um, but whether I'm a good storyteller or not is a work in progress. I'm sure you're doing pretty well and doing a very good job at it. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't get invited to more than one, I would imagine. Yeah, you'd think so, right? Yeah. So what effect, if any, has building your personal brand um, had on, on your business and building your business? I think those two things go reasonably hand in hand. So as a company, so at, at Meld Studios as a company, and I, and I was fortunate to start the company with two other people, uh, Janet DeValda, who was in the US when we started the business, Ian Barker, who's from the UK, but was already in Australia, um, both of whom in their own right have strong reputations, um, have their own sort of uh, high profile positions, um, have written things, presented things, um, and then like, and, and, and myself. Um, but we made a decision when we started the business that we didn't want to be the sort of company that advertised. Um, what we wanted to be was the sort of company that people came to. And in order for people to come to you, you really need uh, a few things that work to reinforce one another. And so we've worked on those over the years. And, and one of those is simply that you are able to deliver good work, that whatever work you get, you do it well. And that may sound trite, um, but I, I don't believe that a lot of organizations necessarily focus on a high level of quality. Um, some studios are set up to simply turn over work and they do satisfactory work and they do a lot of it um, and, and that's their business model. And we had sort of deliberately set out that we would do high quality work um, and irrespective of the project that we won, we would do our, our best work on it. Um, the second thing is that we then talk about that work. Um, so we go through the effort of reflecting on what we've done, reflecting on what we've done well, reflecting on new techniques that we've developed or iterations to existing techniques that we might have developed. And then we talk about that stuff publicly. Now, that can be through conference presentations. Over the years, uh, as a company, we've encouraged our staff to run workshops at conferences. We run public workshops ourselves to help other people learn the techniques that we use in our design work. Um, we've written articles. Uh, we've given conference presentations. Um, and we've also encouraged our staff to teach. So we have a number of staff over the years who've um, worked as lecturers um, delivering course materials at university level in design, service design, strategic design courses, um, which subsequently builds a profile out in the community that attracts better projects. And a better project is one with a good brief that's well-resourced with a company that sort of understands and will invest their own time which subsequently raises the likelihood that you will be able to deliver an even better piece of work next time that you can then talk about, that you can then, and, and around that goes this sort of, is this sort of positively reinforcing cycle. Um, as a nice side effect, it also tends to attract uh, good staff, um, people from all around the world routinely reach out to us, not in the last 12 or 18 months because everyone in the world is locked down, but as a general rule, we'll accept um, or we'll receive 
approaches from people from all around the world um, who are looking for a change of scenery or who are specifically looking to come and work with us. And that's sort of been that um, broad strategy since we founded that doing good work, thinking about it critically, talking about it in a way that's useful for other people. So it's not, it's not a, a boastful exercise. It's a, an attempt to genuinely be useful um, so that the people who engage with what we're saying are in a position to do better work themselves. Um, so another aspect of that is the simple recognition that we can't be the only people who are doing this work well. Um, ideally, we need as many people in as many organisations, both inside the organisation and in agencies, who can do their best work. Um, and some of that will come from the lessons that we are able to share. And hopefully there are other people out there. And obviously there are people who are out there doing the same thing and, and we can learn from them and incorporate it into our next uh, piece of work. So that's sort of broadly the idea. Um, as a result, my profile and, and my reputation, both as an individual and, and as a person at Meld Studios, um, has had sort of active work over the time. And that helps, as I say, to both attract good staff to the business, but also to attract those clients who want to work with us. Do you have any sense of um, how big an effect that has actually had? I imagine when you first started Meld Studios that perhaps you were, you know, like every starting company, you were, you know, beating the pavement and knocking on some doors and, and trying to sort of build build some business and, and getting out there somewhat. Um, is there a sense of actually now most of the attraction or some of the attraction or half the attraction comes from a lot of this public stuff that we do or? Maybe two-thirds of our work comes from direct referrals from people we've either worked with in the past or um, have sort of spoken to a colleague that says, go and go and talk to Melt Studios. Some of that's go and talk to Steve. Some of it's go and talk to Ian. Some of it's go and talk to, you know, one of the other people at the, the company, go and talk to Jenna. Some of it's direct follow-on work. You do a piece of work with, with a client and they say, okay, now let's work on the next bit. Um, and that's all good. And that's a good sign that not only were you delivering good work, but you were delivering good value and you were delivering it in a way that was easy to work with. Um, so if you're delivering good work, but you're a pain in the ass to, to deal with, then clients will actually sort of turn away and just go, okay, the, the work was great, but I, I don't want to deal with you personally anymore. Um, so there's, a, there's a, a reasonable sense that we're, we're working in a way that people are happy with. We're delivering results that they're, um, that they're valuing. And, and they're willing to actually say to a colleague or a peer in another organisation, that's a, a company that you should go and, um, and, and speak to. Almost without fail, though, we will get approaches from people who've read an article, seen a conference presentation, attended a workshop that we've run, um, who'd, I really liked what you had to say in your um, perspective on whatever that topic is, I need your help in my organisation. I need you to come and do for us what you were talking about doing for that other organisation. They're similar to us. They have a similar challenge. What you did for them would be really good if you could come and do that for us. And that's, you know, like that then feeds the next cycle of referrals. Um, but I'd say it's maybe 20 to 25% of new clients come to us through that public profile um, and sometimes that is look, we'd like you to um, like we'd like to invite you to participate in this sort of uh, closed tender um, so it's still a competitive process no guarantee of having won it um, but that person that uh, company might be reaching out to just three or four businesses that they feel confident can deliver um, and your reputation gets you into that mix. And that's always a pretty, um, a pretty good position to be in. And I'd say about a quarter of our work comes through those sorts of interactions. 
over the, over the years, I've worked with a number of different clients, and it sort of still surprises me to some degree that I stumble across you know a new client perhaps, and you know I dig into their business a little bit and discover that they're actually doing some really amazing things, but I've never heard of them. You know, I've never stumbled across them. It was by accident that I stumbled across them at that point in time. I always call them the, you know, the best kept secrets. And that's not something you want to be known for in business. No, How important no. is it, do you think, for a business owner, uh, for an entrepreneur in general, to actually get out there and, and be the face of the business and be visible? We, we're going through a process at the moment of engaging with um, a marketing company to help us. So for, for all of the good that we can sort of do in it, um, when you're in it, it can also be difficult to really identify where you might need some help, um, to take the time to really analyse where leads are coming from and, and where people are finding you uh, and, and make sure that you are telling a story that's answering their questions today so this is this is one of those things that um again sort of good research will tell you the answers to these things but when you're in the midst of doing your own job it can be hard to to go and conduct that research so, so we've brought in that help um and they're they're going through and looking at well for the people who are engaging with companies to do the kind of work that we can do that we would help them with how are they framing that problem and then translating that into what should we be talking about how might we be telling that story so that we're connecting those two things um, and it's not about i mean you could take that as a cynical exercise and say i'm going to talk about stuff that we really can't do but it'll attract work and then i'll figure out how to do it but there's also a very real problem as you say of people who are doing really good things but aren't talking about it in a way that would allow anybody else to know it um, they're not broadcasting it they're not publishing it um, maybe they're not using the right terminology or they're using technical jargon or industry jargon instead of words that a client would use. Um, and so those two things never get connected and all of that is important. But we're, we're sort of taking on that message of we're going to get help with that um, and going through this process of looking at what we're saying and how we're saying it uh, to find those ways that we can improve it because Otherwise, you're back into that situation that we've been trying to avoid as a business of having to advertise. And even then, you're in a position of, in that ad, what is it that you're actually saying? And if you're not clear on what people are trying to solve for, what problems that they're thinking about, what questions they've got in their mind, then the likelihood that your ad is going to be any better than your content marketing was um, is, is low. Over the years, you've uh, ventured across and published in a number of different formats. So, you, you know, you talk about writing in the early days in publications. You've done some presentations and keynotes. Uh, you know, you, you've built your personal brand across, uh, you know, award ceremonies, for example. You talk about teaching. So there's a whole number of different formats that you clearly have been active in. How important is it to spread yourself out across maybe more than one format? Um, and is it important to uh, to be seen in different places or where your audience might be? Um, or would you suggest maybe focusing in on, you know, one or two areas and, you know, being known and being very good at that? I am not yet clear on whether or not there's a single answer to that question. So, you know, after 25 years of working across various parts of the design industry, um, I'm, not, I'm not clear. So I have, um, you know, colleagues and peers, um, uh, a friend and, and, and co-worker by the name of Ram, uh, Ram Castillo, uh, who runs a very successful podcast called Giant Thinkers. Um, 
hundreds of thousands uh, of subscribers, it might even be millions of subscribers, it wouldn't make a lot of sense for him to spread out and diversify necessarily if it was going to detract from his ability to do that podcast. Um, so you can understand if you've built up a successful following um, and you've got that audience in a particular medium like that podcast, that requires additional work, that requires ongoing energy and, and effort. Um, spreading yourself into other areas may not make a great deal of sense for him. Um, I don't have that. I don't have a platform where I'm attracting millions of followers. I don't have, you know, like a blog that gets hundreds of thousands of, of readers or, you know, millions of followers on uh, Instagram. I'm, I'm not going to start doing um, beauty product influencing on, on TikTok anytime soon. Um, so I, for me, it's about getting stories out into the industry where those people will tend to be listening. So um, articles on Medium are good. Articles in different magazines, online sort of uh, magazines are good. LinkedIn articles uh, work reasonably well as well because a lot of both our clients and uh, perspective, uh, prospective um, staff will be in, in those areas. I'm reasonably active on Twitter. Um, conference presentations not only at the conference itself, but they provide an ongoing audience with people logging in to either listen to them or watch them um, many years down the down the track. For me, at least, um, I'm not fixed on a particular platform, and so I, I can adopt the the practice of simply putting things out into the medium that seems to make the most sense. Um, I've recorded a few videos on, on different topics. Uh, conference presentations have been both uh, video and audio recorded and they're out there. Um, we've written a lot and I've written a lot over the years, um, which is obviously uh, sort of persists as well. I think there's, there's something to be said for that ability to focus on a channel and outlet, um, put the effort into building that and, and that actually creates an audience. If your audience isn't necessarily going to come to you, then you will need to find ways to reach it. Um, and that will come from, you know, things like this, appearing on somebody else's podcast or writing an article and publishing it on somebody else's uh, site, um, engaging in different um, Slack communities, for example, is another way of, of reaching out to people. Um, but it's a very uh, personal form of interaction, those sorts of things, like being on Twitter, being on LinkedIn, being in sort of Slack communities. It's very much about that personal interaction that you're having rather than the brand um, being out there and, and growing on its own. Would you call yourself a conscious creator? So do you put you know time in your diary every week and you write you know religiously write a blog or you know, you want to do four keynotes a year and you, you work towards that or is it a bit more random, a bit more ad hoc? I, I think ad hoc and random would very well summarise my approach to these things. Um, I, I have been able to develop um, some habits over the years, but not when it comes to writing and presenting. Um, for whatever reason, I get sort of distracted and I'll go through a flurry of activity and um, then I get distracted by something else again and uh, I'll go through another flurry of activity. Um, I found what, one good thing um, that, I, that I have gotten into the habit of is around the UX Australia podcast um, that we've been producing now for just over a year. Um, and... With that, I have these um, effectively seasons of the podcast uh, and I'll record anything up to sort of 15 or 20 episodes and they tend to be about 20 minutes long. Um, they're often um, uh, sort of collected around a conference. We run three conferences a year and a, and a bunch of other events. So I have this opportunity to go, who are the speakers at the conference? 
I'm going to do short interviews with each of them and then we'll release it as a season. Um, over the summer, I did one around uh, women authors, uh, female authors, and I did a, about eight interviews with um, uh, women authors. And we released that as a season. We did a season around the design research conference that we ran in March. Um, I'm in the, the midst of recording the uh, UX Australia conference season uh, at the moment. Um, and then those can be released. And I've, I've found that that style of habit, if you like, which is that I've got a season and I'm, I'm going to record a bunch of uh, interviews and then I'm fortunate that I can hand it off to somebody else to edit and publish um, because, you know, UX Australia has an events team and a, and a production team associated with it, so I can do that. Um, and I'm, I'm currently recording those and I'm in the process of planning the next season. So the next season of the, the UX Australia podcast will be looking at the issue of designing for a uh, net zero economy. Um, and the plan is to talk to people who can help explore that issue, be they uh, carbon economists, uh, sustainability people, um, fossil fuel people, um, I'm interested in understanding what are the sorts of things that we engage with, that we make, that we use, um, that are derived from fossil fuels in some way or another. Like we understand the energy that goes into making something, but what about the materials themselves? All, all plastics, for example, have fossil fuel um, foundations to them. Um, Gas heating and cooking is quite obviously a fossil fuel. But if I'm someone like um, a technology startup who's designing a fitness app, to what extent do I need to think about carbon emissions when I'm designing that service, when I'm designing that system? And how would I go about it? If I run a retail outlet like Woolworths, um, big major supply chain type of thing, how do I account for the carbon that's in my supply chain? How do I account for the difference between in-store shopping versus click and collect as a systemic issue as it relates to carbon emissions? And how would I redesign that if my intent was to reach net zero? So that's gonna be the, um, the topic of that podcast. But um, as I say, for me, just because of the way that I organize my time and my, myself, being able to say, okay, that's a topic, that's a season, I'm going to line up, you know, 10 or 12 interviews that explores that, record them and hand them off is something that I, I find I can do reasonably well, rather than these people who are, um, you know, sit down for an hour a day or sit down for a couple of hours a week and just do that content creative um, activity. I'm, I'm much more sporadic. It's pretty obvious to me that whilst you may say you're not you know consistent in that way uh, what you have been consistent on is producing over a long period of time would be fair to say that you've been writing for you say 25 years um, that has led into different formats as things evolve so speaking and podcasting those kinds of things so the longevity there I think is where you're now reaping a lot of those benefits and I do see that quite a bit is whilst you might not be consistent on a daily weekly basis as long as you are consistently putting yourself out there the benefits are only going to come given enough time and you know putting it out in the right formats and and in in the right places so well done so congratulations on, on doing that do you have any sense that um you know from a production perspective how important is it to do things like you know good quality uh, graphics good quality sound and audio good quality video and lighting how important is that versus the quality of the content itself in other words is it is it best to just get it out of your head and get it out there and don't worry too much about the quality or is there a need for a certain amount of quality for it to work the better the quality that you can make it, the better it will resonate with people, I believe. However, I think there's a, a, a risk that we run 
of not doing it at all because we're not happy with the quality of it or we don't think the quality will be there. And so it doesn't happen. If I can't achieve a certain production quality that I'm not going to do it at all is probably doing a disservice to ourselves because somewhere in, in between those two points is decent quality, but still really good content. Um, and that at least starts people engaging with the ideas and at least starts people um, moving it around. Audio podcasts are much easier than video to do well. Um, and so you can create a decent quality, quite a decent quality podcast with very little infrastructure. Um, so if quality is an issue, go for a podcast. That's, that's probably the easiest of, of all of those things. Um, articles on Medium are very easy to write. So if you're more comfortable writing than speaking, publishing on one of those sorts of platforms is something that you can do reasonably well. There are going to be issues around licensing and cost and, um, you know, uh, copyright and a range of other things that you should investigate before you use a platform like Medium or use uh, any, any sort of publishing platform. But those are relatively uh, low barriers to entry. Once you start doing video, I think issues like um, lighting, picture quality, uh, the quality of the editing, um, where it's served and whether or not it will stream well become much more important and can get in the way of people actually engaging with the ideas. So I've been watching some very uh, well-produced videos recently from um, a, a policy group called the Australia Institute, um, a, a series around uh, the economy and various elements of the, uh, of the Australian economy. And, and they do some quite good uh, videos that are reasonably well produced. Um, it's not like watching a production on the ABC or SBS or, you know, commercial television. It's a couple of people in a studio talking, um, but they do it reasonably, uh, they do a reasonably good job of, of the production. The better quality you can do, the better. Um, but as I say, I don't, don't let that stop you. Um, and I've, I've seen and spoken with a lot of people who have let quality simply stop them from doing anything at all. And I'd encourage people to, it, it's better to articulate those ideas, to get them out into the public domain, allow people to engage with them, allow that scrutiny to come through, and overall they'll be much better as a result. It's a lovely segue into my final question, Steve, that I like to ask everybody as we, uh, as we finish up is if somebody paid you a million dollars to pick your brain, but you only had a few minutes to sort of impart some of your best knowledge, what, what would you say to them? I'm going to give it away for free. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Instead of saving it for, for a million bucks one day, um, I think one of the most one of the most sort of critical things um, that we forget, and I, I see it in my children sometimes, is this idea that we're going to be good at anything straight off the bat. We will always be bad when we start out, um, and if our focus is on how we compare to the best people in the industry or the best people in a domain, that can be quite confronting and it can scare us away. Um, one thing that was told to me by a magazine editor uh, many years ago, um, when I expressed this sort of, oh, I, I don't know that I'm, you know, the right caliber to be writing for your publication. You know, you've got this sort of litany of names of people who have this high profile. Um, and the editor sort of turned around and said, the reason they have such a high profile is because they write for this magazine, not the other way around. And I'm interested in your thoughts. And so I was like, okay, well, that's not the way that I was thinking about it. I was thinking about it as they had a profile and they had this sort of expertise and that's why they were writing you will always be bad at 
whatever it is you're doing when you get started. And the only way to get better at it is to get started. Um, and just to work on improving yourself and to reflect on what you need to improve um, and what kind of effort you need to put in to actually get there. That works in so many domains. Um, it works in design, it works in exercise, it works in your favorite hobby, um, it works in learning a language, it works in our relationships with other people. You're not going to be good at those things when you start, but you will get better over time if you continue to work at it. Steve, I've highly enjoyed our conversation and thank you so much for sharing some of your wisdom. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Where can people find out a little bit more about you? So you are most likely to find me on Twitter at Doc Beatty, D-O-C-B-A-T-Y. That is where I am most vocal, um, most cranky, um, and also most verbose, in, if, if you can believe that, on Twitter. Um, otherwise, you will find me on LinkedIn um, and, of course, at, at Meld Studios and also at the UX Australia podcast, which you can sign up to at uh, uxaustralia.com.au. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks for being a part of the telling of story. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Wow. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Steve Beatty as much as I did. There were so many things in that to unpack. Everything from making sure that you're asking your customers about what it is they need and when do they need it and delivering on that as part of your customer journey. The time that it's taken Steve to build his personal brand, the consistency in which he's done so, even though he humbly says he hasn't been consistent, he's been there and done that for 25 years. And as a subsequent side effect, he's built a great business that get, attracts a really good customer base because of some of the public stuff that he does do. His personal brand and his business brand have actually melded together pardon the pun, but what I loved, what I really loved was when he spoke about doing good work, unpacking that internally, but then speaking about it in public and not just speaking about it in a braggy kind of way, but doing it in such a way as to help others. Such an authentic approach. And I get that from everything that he said was that his true desire was to make the world a better place. And if he can contribute to that, then he's done his job. But what that does is attract a better type of client and also a better type of employee. So what a great tip there is to put out your work in an authentic, meaningful, useful and honest way and that will attract a better audience. Much love. Chat soon. <laughs>